We'll now read our scripture today from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. You can follow along in your own Bibles or from the words on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about by your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Every September, thousands of people make their way to Boston to start school or new jobs. Given the elite universities and companies here, you might assume that these people are puffed up with pride, but almost every new student or employee secretly fears that they don't belong. Everyone else just seems so smart and accomplished. I, I, I must have slipped past admissions or HR by mistake. How long until they see that I don't deserve to be here? And that same fear often plagues people visiting new churches. Looking around, everybody else seems so earnest, pure, and, and sure of their faith. I don't really belong here because my mind is plagued by doubts and dark thoughts. My life is littered with poor choices. My, my relationships are a mess. How long until they realize I don't deserve to be here? I struggle with those same questions sometimes. I'm a pastor, so some people assume that my faith is unwavering. Any temptations are fleeting. Prayer must be easy, and I just bask in God's affection all the time. But none of that is true. The last one, least of all. My whole life, I've struggled to believe that I'm loved, whether by my wife, my parents, my friends, or even God, because I don't believe I deserve it. Whenever my faith starts to waver, it first shows up as insecurity. So I was determined to make sure that my kids would never struggle with that. I'd remind them that they're loved so often that they'd get annoyed hearing it. When our first son, Noah, was three, right on schedule, he started asking, why about everything? Why is this called breakfast? Why is it sunny? Why is that your car? And to every answer I gave, he responded with yet another, why? Well, it's my car because I bought it. Why? Because I needed it to get places. Why? Because it's too far to walk. Why? Because poor civic planning since World War II has made everything too far apart. Why? Well, because everybody bought cars. Why? Because it was too far to walk. Why? I'm around and around we'd go. He was driving me nuts, but not wanting to resort to the popular, because I said so, to end this exasperating dialogue. Instead, regardless of the context, one day I, one day I answered his third or fourth why with, because I love you very much. Why is that your car? Because well, I needed to get places. Why? Because it's too far to walk. Why? Because I love you very much. This clever non sequitur 
totally derailed him for a few days and would immediately end the conversation. I I thought I was a genius until he finally asked me, why? I, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't tell him that, but he had me. I, I knew I did love him more than I loved myself, but I had no idea why. Like every toddler, he could be moody, demanding, expensive, and exhausting. Before he came along, I had more time for friends, my wife, myself, God, work, and workouts. And I traveled and slept more, but I spent and weighed less. I knew I loved him, but why? I couldn't tell him because I still didn't know why I was loved either. On most days, I still didn't believe that I was loved or or lovable, and I could list lots of reasons why. Immediately, I recognized that unlike most of Noah's inane inquiries, this was an incredibly important question. Though he couldn't articulate it this way, he knew intuitively that he depends on Michelle and my love for his very life. Our love is the reason he'll eat tonight and have shelter to sleep under. Our love is the basis of his safety and the source of his identity. If our love ends, his life could end with it. So he needs to know why I love him so that he can ensure that I'll still love him tomorrow. I considered responding to his question by listing his qualities that I enjoyed. That he was cute and clever and cuddly and funny and sincere, gentle and obedient. A list like that might have been affirming, but untrue. I mean, I did love all those things, but none of them is why I loved him. I loved him the first time I held him, and even as I prayed for him before I ever met him. But more importantly, I feared that suggesting that I loved him for certain qualities he possessed might make him worry that my love is conditional on his performance or personality. If I love him because he's cute, will I still love him when he grows up and isn't so cute anymore? If I love his innocence, will I still love him as his innocence erodes with age? If I love his sunny disposition, will I still love him when he's down? If I love him because he's obedient, what will happen on the day he defies me? If I love him because he makes good choices, will I still love him if he becomes a Yankees fan? Can you see how my very attempt to assure him of my love could make him more insecure than ever? My effort to alleviate his fear could create the fear that my love is conditional on his ability, personality, or behavior. I know that's possible because it's the lie I've wrestled with most of my life. My parents told me I was loved, but I never understood why. So I wasn't sure if I would still be loved if I screwed up somehow. They often affirmed things I did well, which I interpreted as the answer to why they loved me. And I know I'm not alone, because many of us have wondered if our parents love us, and if so, why? We've worried that our increasing weight or decreasing GPA, our our poor performance, poor prayer life, or poor choices, might compromise our parents' love for us. And it's not just our mothers and fathers, it's our Heavenly Father as well. 
over and over again. We're told how much he loves us. But from the time that we're toddlers, we never stop wondering why. I I mean, sure, he loves people in, in a generic sense, right? God loves the whole world. But we wonder whether he really loves me individually. Why would he? If he knows as much as people say he does, then he knows I don't deserve his love. I'm supposed to reflect God's image, but often I look nothing like him. I'm not patient or faithful or gracious the way God always is. Some of us fear that we don't belong in God's family. Have you ever wondered about that? We just began a new sermon series studying the Apostles' Creed. Last Sunday, we explored the words, I believe, and realized that rather than a dry list of doctrines, the Apostles' Creed is a passionate pledge of allegiance the earliest Christians made to the new Lord of their lives. And the first word they used to describe that Lord was Father. I believe in God the Father. You know, isn't that a little presumptuous, right? Claiming the, the, the almighty creator of the universe as your father. And yet this is what they'd experienced God to be and what they learned from the apostles who taught in the passage we read earlier, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. There are plenty of things I don't know much about. But adoption? I'm familiar with. Christians talk often about being God's children, but the doctrine of adoption is rarely preached, though it's all over the Bible. Some of Scripture's greatest heroes, including Moses and Esther and Jesus, were adopted. Let me tell you why this matters. We talk about our Lord's love for his children, but we're not sure that applies to us because one look at our character or conduct proves that we don't look like our our heavenly father, not as much as you'd expect children to look like their parents. Indeed, God has a natural born son who fully shares his nature. He loves that son very much, but you're not him. So it's no surprise to our Heavenly Father that the rest of us look a bit different because we don't share his DNA in the same way Jesus did. But we're still God's very own children, his beloved adopted children. As the father of 11 adopted children, adoption has helped me better appreciate the way God loves me. 17 years ago, Michelle and I adopted a Mexican baby who didn't look like us. But from that very first day, we couldn't stop staring at him, cherishing him. He was our son. It was no accident that this baby joined our family. The previous year, Michelle and I agreed that we wanted to expand our family if we found a child who might not be as easily adopted through the regular processes. Our two previous children, Noah and Zoe, joined us in prayer for him for for months before he'd even been born. Every night at bedtime, Noah asked to pray for his yet unknown sibling. Soon, we received a call about a courageous Mexican woman who'd immigrated to the U.S. illegally to escape violence and find work. When she got pregnant, 
she contacted INS to make a deal. She offered to turn herself in, be returned to poverty and potential danger, if the boy in her belly could grow up with Christian parents as an American. It's tragic that she was in that situation, but could there be more sacrificial love? When Michelle and I received that call, we flew thousands of miles to meet her. And that day, we were filled with indescribable joy over this beautiful new child, just as we'd been when we brought home Noah and Zoe before him. And this is like what our Heavenly Father does with us. God sees the need that all of us have for love, security, purpose, and hope. God sees us as vulnerable orphans who need more than what even the best human parents can fully provide. But he promises, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He travels from heaven to earth to rescue us and bring us home forever. We see in Galatians that God was so eager to redeem us who were slaves to proving ourselves and performing that he sent his only son to search for us, save us, and adopt us into his very own family. Again and again, God refers to us as his children. Unlike in any other ancient religion, we read earlier that Christians are invited to call the creator and controller of the whole universe, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word that young Jewish children like Jesus or Paul would have used to call their daddies. Prior to Jesus, no Jew would ever dared speak that way to God. It was, it was too intimate and, and informal. But that's the name God invites us to call him because that's the new relationship we're invited into. Sometimes kids think it's funny and, and grown up to call their parents by their first names. When Zoe first learned that my name is Dave, she started calling me that and laughing hysterically. And I told her that she's welcome to call me that, but it makes me sad because anybody can call me Dave. But only she and her siblings get to call me Dad. You know, there's nothing wrong with addressing God as God or Oh Holy Creator or Oh Sovereign Lord of Hosts or any of his other titles in Scripture. Those names describe him accurately. But our Heavenly Father chose to adopt us into his family. So now we get to call him Daddy. And that changes everything because the security of servants depends on their performance. They get only what they earn and they remain only as long as they're useful. But the security of children is based on the love of their parents. And they inherit everything without needing to earn anything just because they're family. But why call God father rather than parent? Is that just the patriarchy? Years ago, I asked my kids why we don't call God mother sometimes. And one of my daughters replied indignantly, because God's not a girl. And I realized how damaging our language can be. Does she think that she reflects God any less than her brothers do? To the contrary. Genesis insists that both male and female were required to adequately reflect God's image. Each embody essential aspects of God, as does their life-giving relationship between them, which is why the Bible also uses female imagery for God. 
But the focus on Father in the Creed and in Scripture is more than just respecting God's preferred pronouns. It, it reflects the distinctive role of fathers in that culture. In the ancient world, legally, a father owned everything and everyone. When a man and woman married, she left her clan and joined his family. His reputation, wealth, and strength determined the security and social status of anyone in his household. So for a Roman slave girl to declare, I believe in God the Father, was to recognize that she possessed a greater dignity and was guaranteed a greater inheritance than anyone could yet imagine. Those Christians celebrated that we're not limited by our worldly achievements, abilities, nationality, ethnicity, or economic class. I don't need to feel inadequate next to anyone. Oh, your daddy's Bill Gates, creator of Microsoft? Well, that's nice. But my father's the creator of heaven and earth. So I am somebody. I'm the child of God. For some, seeing God as a father is very comforting because we imagine him to be like our own earthly fathers. We imagine him to be patient and protective, generous and kind. For others, seeing God as a father is disturbing because we imagine him to be like our own earthly fathers. We imagine him to be irritable, impatient, arrogant, or absent. To folks from families like that, I am truly sorry. And I want to assure you that God doesn't learn what it means to be a father from your dad. But dads, your kids will learn what father means from many of you. As they watch the way you respond to them, your spouse, or external difficulties, they'll begin to form their initial picture of what God might be like. Every interaction is spiritual formation, whether we mean it to be or not. Too many fathers assume that physical protection and provision is their only responsibility. But God calls us to far more than that, to spiritual protection and provision for our children. Many men are fathers biologically, but in almost no other respect. And some of you have fathers like that. You know, babies can be conceived by accident, but no one gets adopted by accident. It's a deliberate choice. So in Romans, God insists that we are his adopted children. You know, as it happens, you can't just take a kid home with you. Adoption involves an extensive legal process. When the process was complete, our son received a new birth certificate that listed the original hospital, but his new name, and declared that he was born to Michelle and me instead of his biological birth mother, which isn't historically accurate. But the purpose of a birth certificate is not to record the past, but to shape the future. That document made us responsible for his welfare and entitled him to any inheritance we may leave. He's our son. Obviously, he wasn't literally reborn in the courtroom that day, but from a legal perspective, it's as though he were. And this is like what Christians mean when we speak of being born again. It's not just a subjective experience of God's Holy Spirit. It's a new identity that binds us to a new family. In John 3, Nicodemus, one of Israel's premier intellectuals, was confused by this concept. 
but it's really no more complicated than any adopted child getting a new birth certificate. Being born again is simply accepting God's offer to give us a new identity, a new family, and an eternal home. And there's even more. We read earlier, if we're children, then we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Everything Jesus gets, I get. Everything the Father feels towards Jesus, he feels towards me. Paul specifies that the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Sons is the right translation here, not children, because in that culture, only sons could receive an inheritance. So Paul's making the point that unlike many religions and cultures that give preferential treatment to men, in Christ, all of us receive the same spectacular inheritance. But joining God's family also brings a new responsibility. We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. The Father loves me like he loves Jesus, but he also sends me like he sends Jesus to love others sacrificially. Christ came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus was sent to find orphans like us wherever we were hiding, and invite us into his father's family. That's why over and over throughout the scriptures, including Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 24 and and here in James 1, God's people are commanded to care for orphans because that's what our heavenly father does. And when we join the family, we join the family business. Who are the orphans our father sends us to care for today? Well, of course, it's children born into families who can't care for them, but it goes beyond just literal orphans. It's anyone in your school, office, or extended family who doesn't know that we have a Heavenly Father who created them, loves them, and is eager to adopt them and bring them back home. Do you know anyone like that? You know, sometimes we hide our faith from people who don't already share it, but those are the people we're sent to seek and save by demonstrating our Father's love and inviting them into our family forever. And that's what Noah and Zoe did all those years ago. As I said, for months before we ever met him, Noah and Zoe prayed for their new sibling. In the days leading up to our trip, they talked about all the things they'd teach him. Noah would teach him how to throw a baseball and say please and thank you. Zoe would teach him the alphabet. They'd teach him what they'd learned from us. They'll teach him what it means to be a swain. When they first met him, they wanted to hug him and kiss him. They they wanted to love him in the way that they'd learned to love from us. They loved him because we loved them first. In that same vein, John writes, since God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We love because he first loved us. And he's given us this command, whoever loves God must also love their brother and sister. But that doesn't mean that they'll become just like us. All the Swain children have distinct ethnicities and personalities, but increasingly they share our heart. They see through our eyes. They speak our words. They follow our footsteps as we follow Christ. And they love each other the way that Michelle and I love them all. We're each unique, but we're one family. Likewise, church, 
We are so different in so many ways. But as the adopted children of one heavenly father, we're family. But becoming family doesn't suddenly mean we understand each other. In our family, we became a family. And then we started to learn each other's languages and preferences, hot buttons and shortcomings. Being a family is hard work. I mean, in marriage, you choose just one person to love, and even that's challenging. But in adoptive families, you don't get to choose your siblings any more than they got to choose you. And then, even though we don't look the same or like the same things, we need to love each other. That's what a church is like. It's not simply people that you'd choose. It's all the people our Father has chosen. And we love him by loving each other. That's what the Swain family is like. And that's what we want the High Rock family to be like. A few years after adopting that Mexican baby, Michelle and I received an email about three adolescent siblings orphaned by war in Africa. They'd been brought to Boston as refugees by the UN, but social services hadn't been able to locate a home for them. I admit I was reluctant to adopt any more kids. I mean, our hands and our house was already full. But I brought the matter to God in prayer, and then, foolishly, I asked my wife and kids what they thought. You know, if I wanted a way out, they were the wrong ones to ask, because they understand firsthand the transformational power of adoption. So they insisted that we adopt these three strangers. I tried explaining what it would cost them in terms of personal space and vacations and attention, but they didn't care about the cost as much as they cared about loving those in need. Kind of like Jesus. So, a few days later, those kids moved into our home. I I love this photo from our first full day together because it captures the second after my son in the middle, who'd been an orphan the day before, shouted out in broken English, we are family. And he cracked himself up with the light. And he was right. Just like that, this crazy clan of strangers had become a family. Noah and Zoe both volunteered their bedrooms to their new siblings. But those kids had never slept in a room alone before. And they were afraid. So without discussing it, Noah slept on the floor next to his new brother, sleeping in what had been his bed. And Zoe slept on the floor next to her new sister in what had been her bed. And when I found them there in the middle of the night, I almost wept. Is this the way that Jesus loves me? Friends, sharing the heart of our Heavenly Father means loving everyone our Father loves, even when it costs us something. That's part of what we're pledging every time we declare, I believe in God the Father. The psalmist reflects happily, a father to the fatherless. God set the lonely in families. You know, today, there are over 1,100 children in the Massachusetts foster care system waiting for families. Maybe the Spirit is speaking to some of you about that. But beyond just literal orphans, there are so many lonely people around us today. People who have homes and careers and nice cars and busy calendars, but are missing the love of our Father. So Jesus sends us to seek and save by loving them the way he does and inviting them back home. Ask the Spirit today, who are the lonely people 
that our Father may be sending you to invite back home. And when they sense that we actually care, and, and we tell them that God loves them even more, they may ask, why? Just like Noah did all those years ago. And the answer that I needed as much as any of us is that our Heavenly Father's love is not based on what we do or what we are like, but on what He's done and what He's like. God did not choose to love us because of something special He saw in us. He chose to love us because of something special in His heart. We are God's children, created in His image and adopted into his family forever. Jesus warned that unless you change and become like little children, unless you're born again, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven because you can't earn it. You can only inherit it. You know, there are so many beautiful things I love about my children. They're, they're creative and generous and, and funny, and, and each one of them has so many wonderful qualities. But none of those is the reason I love them. I don't love them for the way they look or, or behave, which would make my love conditional on them continuing to look or behave in a certain way. I love them because they're my children. And I see in them the reflection of our Father. I didn't follow my heart into that love as if I had no choice. I followed Jesus into that love because that's the way that Jesus loves me. We are loved. Not because we're lovable all the time, but because God is love all the time. I believe in God, our Father.